Hello and welcome to episode 135 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Joining me on today's episode is the absolute fantastic writer and director Adam Stovall. We get to sit down and talk all about his brand new film, which I must say is an absolute masterpiece, A Ghost Waits. It's one of my favourite horrors, it's getting some incredible reviews, and the good news is as we're sitting here today, Arrow, only a couple of days ago, have released an incredible Blu-ray edition of this with amazing extra features, all the stuff you'd expect from Arrow, and obviously the film looking the best it can. So honestly, while you're listening to this, go on Amazon or wherever you go and invest because you will not regret it. And after this interview, you'll want it even more. But before we get into that, let's talk about the last episode. It was huge. I was joined by the absolutely beautiful Aubrey Plaza. The interview was huge. It's my most downloaded episode I've ever done. And it was that big, I took a few extra days off because I just wanted it to continue to grow. Loads more people jumping on board, loads of new listeners, new subscribers, so many messages. It was honestly an absolute privilege to sit down and talk to her. And the interview couldn't have come out any better. But today's episode is absolutely massive. The interview is great from start to finish. And I think the best thing to do is to get straight to it. So here's me and Adam Stovall talking all things film. Adam, thank you for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. First of all, I just want to say the listeners out there won't see this, but I can see that you've got a Cornetto Trilogy t-shirt on. Yes. So we're automatically good friends. <laughs> it's I adore the Cornetto Trilogy. Shaun of the Dead is one of my favorite movies. Edgar, Edgar Wright for me is just one of the best out there. He's an absolute genius. So yeah, amazing. I really, you know, and, and like, it's obvious, like it's totally fine if they don't ever work together again, yeah. uh, you know, but I, I have hope in my heart that uh, Edgar and Simon will collaborate again. Cause I just think they really bring the best out of each other. Massively. What I want to do for the listeners today that have tuned in, who may have not known any of your work at this point, or they've just heard a few of the film titles, but they want to take it back right to the start and kind of get to find a bit more about yourself out. Let's take it right back to the early days and when you were growing up. What was it? Can you remember that? What was it at school, at college? When was it that you really thought, I really love film and want to do this and not do anything else? I can't remember a time when I wasn't going to the, to the movie theater. Yeah, uh, my I was a month old when they when my parents took me to see Superman. Wow. So I mean, just like literally my entire life, um, and they said I behaved myself. So as I I think it's always just been kind of my sanctuary, you yeah. know, a place of calm and which is I think what made like what has made twenty twenty so difficult is, you know, especially in a really tumultuous time to not be able to go to the place that kind of zeroes you out and calms you down has just made everything so much harder. Um, but the memory I always kind of go back to, like the first clear, like, oh, movies mean more to me than other than many other people is uh, when Back to the Future had its network television premiere. Wow. And yeah, um, and they were gonna show the first bit of footage from Back to the Future 2 during you know, a commercial break. And I remember sitting in our basement on Hallam Avenue and I had like a little Chef Boyardee, Chef Boyardee pizza and I had my Back to the Future storybook. And like, I just, I loved that movie. I still love that movie. Yeah. You know, I wanted Marty McFly to be my best friend. Um, 
and then you know like storytelling was always there um i i writing you know i i got it i got into writing and in like really like middle school is when they start to see if you have like a facility for things yeah in the states it's middle school yeah um and so that's when i started getting like short story assignments um and i remember <laughs> in eighth grade we were assigned to write a short story and i'm watching uh mrs higdon was her name uh watching my english you know watching her like go around and pick up everybody's short story isn't there two three maybe four pages and then she gets to mine and it's a 19 page legal thriller and she just <laughs> looked at me like really like come on man um and she just wrote a on it and like left wow. it <laughs> like, nice. well i mean i appreciate the grade but come well, on please please read it yeah yeah um and that's you know all throughout school and then i wrote my first script when i was like 2021 20, yeah it was terrible it was <laughs> titled Shadows on the Wall after the lyric from uh, Watching the Wheels by John Lennon. Nice. Because um, I fancied myself a very world-weary 20-year-old. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. And then it just, you know, growing up in Northern Kentucky, you feel so far from anyone who makes movies that it just seemed like, a, you know, an impossible dream. Yeah. Um, and you know, you read interviews or I would read interviews with filmmakers and they would say, if you could be happy doing anything else, do that. And so I really tried, I spent my twenties just doing anything else, working in politics, running bars and restaurants. I was a door to door salesman for a while. And I was terrible at that. <laughs> um, that was just an awful job, but, uh, yeah, it always was there in my heart, you know, yeah. and it was always just there in the background. And every now and then I would just have to like write something to kind of get myself uh, centered again. Um, and yeah, it, you know, I, I would do comedy and, you know, writing sketches, live performance was kind of like, it's like, all right, well, let's, you know, this is something that we can make happen. None of us had cameras or lights or, you know, sound equipment, but I, but like I could talk us into a venue. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was just that, but it, it, it was never quite enough. And eventually I just realized like, I have to, I have to give my, I have to take like, um, I have to make a movie. I have yeah. to see if I can, you know, and just nothing else was going to cut it. Um, and of course you can't just say like, I've decided I'm ready to make a movie world. Yeah. Give unto me the riches that are required. And so we just spent years trying to do that, trying to make stuff and um, you know, it didn't quite come together. And then this did, because uh, we just kept like aiming for smaller numbers and smaller numbers. And I'm pretty sure I've answered like three questions that weren't even asked at this point. I was gonna say, so thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Take care. But um... <laughs> I was like, you should stop talking, Adam. This is this is marking me. Yeah, but, but, um, no, it's good. But the the thing is, like, what I wanted to know was, even though you're watching these films at such a young age, when was it you were kind of noticing that the because you've been writing oh. a lot, you've been doing screenplays. When when was it you were really noticing the dialogue more than just the special effects of the DeLorean or the the, the absolute amazingness of being Martin McFly? When were you actually watching yeah. films, noticing that there was actually a script being written here that you could want to try and do yourself? Thank you. That's what I was getting to. And then I distracted myself somehow. Um, <laughs> uh, Pulp Fiction was really a, yeah. a massive moment for me. That was an epoch in my life. Um, I was helping my dad 
help his friend move into the, his new house. And so we went down there, we, we did that. Uh, we put together the furniture that we were gonna need that weekend. And then we went to dinner. And while we were sitting at dinner, they, cause they would always, they go get some food then they go see the movie. And Jerry was my dad's friend's name, Dr. Jerry Taylor. He's looking at the paper and there's an ad for Pulp Fiction. And he's just like, oh, I've heard really good things about this. Let's see that. So I was like 14 years old and uh, I go with my dad's friend and I just, I mean, uh, it ended. And I just looked at him like, again, we do that again now, please. (laughs) I, you know, I had loved movies for so long. And I mean, I loved movies, not even like, I loved Backdraft and Navy Seals and- Backdraft is a great film. I love Backdraft. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, just, is amazing in that film he is he, I mean Kurt Russell is amazing full stop he's God. he's God um but Pulp Fiction was where I really noticed like the work of a movie yeah. you know the choices that you make um I, I read that was the first time I saw how elastic cinema was yeah. I don't think I'm sure I saw a non-linear narrative before but um that was the one that just like it kind of hung a lantern on a lot of things that uh, were really exciting. Yeah. Um, so Pulp Fiction, you know, and then I went through my phases of like wanting to write like Tarantino and wanting to write like Aaron Sorkin and wanting to write like Paul Thomas Anderson. And yeah, like, um, and so, you know, once you kind of become like a person who loves film and your friends all know you as that, they start giving you everything. And I remember, you know, my friend giving me a bunch of Ingmar Bergman films to watch and just like, oh, well, there goes my sense of story. Cause now the most fascinating thing in the world to me is two people in a room talking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was, but yeah, Pulp Fiction really unlocked. Uh, oh, and then 400 Blows. I remember watching that and just thinking like, this is also a movie. Um, like this is amazing. And it existed on a frequency or on a wavelength that I'd just never seen before, you know, cause I was growing up in the Midwest uh, of the United States. So, yeah. you know, in a small town. So we were kind of at the mercy of whatever came to video America was our neighborhood video. Yeah. Store. You know, so you're not seeing art house films. The criterion collection was not coming to early yeah. in Kentucky. Um, and so once, yeah, once I started seeing that kind of stuff, it was like, Oh, okay. Like, you can do really cool things and there's room for so many voices. Did you have the backing of your family where they like go to film school, son, and let's get you an education in this and let's train you. Or are you just thinking I better get a job that's guaranteed a salary and benefits and it's not going to be, will I make it or will I not? What was your kind of mindset and your family and the people around you? Where I grew up, there just wasn't, making movies wasn't a job. No. Um, You know, welder was a job plumber yeah. was a job yeah you know my dad was a property manager um yeah. you know so it it's not that they said don't no. it's that they're they were just like ah you know it's good to have dreams yeah when you go um, the band next you know one of those conversations let me guess right. you're the singer of a band and you're going to make a film yeah uh and they you know so obviously they wanted good things for me but it was it was just like well maybe you should just worry about paying your bills and yeah. hopefully that will you know because there wasn't even a like oh so go to film school uh or find a mentor or anything like that it was just like well that sounds like a thing that might happen one day hope 
hope it does for you. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah they're, <laughs> so it really, it wasn't until when I moved to Los Angeles and started, uh, I was sort of volunteering for the creative screenwriting uh, podcast, or they had a screening series that was released as a podcast. And I did that for a while and became a journalist, they, you know, with the magazine. They yeah. gave me a, and so like, that was really when it started to take form. And suddenly like, you know, people could kind of see like, oh, Adam might actually be able to do this. Um, Cause suddenly it's like, yeah, I'm writing a speech for Morgan Freeman and I'm talking to JJ Abrams and I'm talking to Wes Anderson and becoming friends with Richard the Gravenace. And, you know, and it was just like, oh, okay. Like maybe that will happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't think it was until this movie was done that people actually were like, so maybe, maybe he can do it. Yeah. <laughs> So at this point, you're obviously getting a real serious mindset and you said you wanted to make a film. You knew that that was the point of your career. You had to make a film. Now, yeah. considering when we talk about A Ghost Waits, you did the acting, you've done some of the, you did the directing, you were a producer, you did the screenplay. Acting feels generous. I yeah. appear on screen. But it's still an actor's <laughs> credit. IMDB will yes. still credit that as an That's, actor. Um, yeah. It can go two ways when you do that stuff. So have you seen Tommy Wiseau's The Room? Yes, I have. Yeah. So he took it on himself to write a screenplay, to be a producer, be on screen and direct. Then you get the other end where you get someone that's absolutely incredible and can do it really well. What was your mindset? Were you thinking, shit, this is so much to try and do on my own. This is a huge, huge thing to try and bite off and try and accomplish. Or were you just ambitious and didn't have that fear well i think it's important to note that i don't i don't play the lead in the movie no. only, i i am a i voice a character and then yeah. i i appear for you know a few seconds at the end um yeah it was a lot but it's a lot to do but, for the first main huge release that you want to make a mark <laughs> on your name most people direct or write or do the producing or the screenplay you were like i'll do it all well let's let's it's not like a i wasn't thinking like oh this will be a huge release okay yeah. like so it i made it smaller in my head yeah i basically just i was like okay i want to make something i wanted to make something with mcleod you know yeah. we had been working for years to make something together and it would just like it would get close and it would fall apart um and I, we had met on another movie he acted in it and i was a second ad and I felt like that was another step of film education where I had a front row seat to a movie that where the producers thought they were going to have more money than they did, but were already in production when they just, you know, like, like, uh, how are we going to make this work? And so I got to kind of see where money went, you yeah. know, and where money needed to go and where it seemed it went out of like habit, yeah. you know? Um, and that was huge. Be, you know what like after we got out of that um you know i wrote a script pretty soon after that that was just like one location and you know a few characters um and for whatever you know we got close with that when it didn't happen and then a ghost waits just happened i i had the idea it was so small but it was from the place of okay we're not there's no way we're getting a seven figure budget there's no way we're getting a six figure budget. You know, we have a low five figure budget, but that is something. Yeah. Um, that will get us, you know, I remember telling McLeod, like, what is a movie? It's people playing a scene 
a location where the scene happens and uh, people recording the scene. Yeah. Like that is it. Uh, and so we just approached like simplicity, simplicity, simplicity became the North star. So it was all, it was it was never this big thing. No. Because I think if I'd let myself think that like, you know, you just don't think about what, no. what comes next. You know, you don't think about like, oh, maybe this will show in a theater. You hope so. But then for me, at least by the time we got to, um, by the time we got to that, it was just, it was an evolution of sorts. Right. But when we started, it was just McLeod and me at a kitchen table, kind yeah. of banging out scenes, figuring out fixes, and then, you know, calling friends, soundtrack, uh, crew, uh, you know, pretty much everyone that worked on this movie was a friend Yeah, that I knew had done something at least similar to what their job would be on this. Um, yeah. But isn't that a great thing? Because when I think of examples like Kevin Smith with Clerks, he never had any expectations. He made it, he made it with his friends, you know, he did it in a convenience store and it became an absolute cult classic that people now will always talk about. But only now in this modern day when we've had, have you seen the film Host, the horror, which is done all on Zoom? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah Rob's movie. Yeah. It's really good. Really fucking good. And again, he's done it with his friends, no big budget, but it gives you the kick and the start. And I think having that lack of expectation is very grounded because you could get ahead of yourself. And the scary point would be that you could be setting yourself up to fail because you could be delusional and you could think, I'm going to be the next James Cameron. I'm going to be the next (laughs) Steven Spielberg, but you've got to be realistic. So for you to have no expectations at that point, any success that would come from this film must have been a blessing because you must have had a realistic kind of outlook on this whole procedure of making the film. Oh, dude, like when you make something so small and so personal, yeah, like whenever it resonates with someone, whenever someone likes it, it's like Christmas. Yeah. Um, you know, I... You know, and when people, you know, we got plenty of no's on this movie from festivals and from distributors, you know, it's black and white. It's just, it's a, it's a weird little movie. Um, you know, some places just didn't dig it. And I was always like, yeah, no, totally understand. <laughs> like no hard feelings whatsoever. I completely yep. get, you know, and I, I remember telling McLeod, like this movie isn't for everybody, but it's for somebody. And we, even when we were just doing friends and family stuff, uh, screenings and whatnot, like, we, you know, every room it played, there was somebody that was just so moved by it. And I remember just like, okay, we definitely have something for someone. Um, And we never, because it was such a low budget and because, you know, we're kind of, I mean, he's not a first timer, he's made a few, but like our investors, it was the first time they'd ever invested in a film and they were very patient. you know, we just got to play with it. And we it got to be a little project that lived on our laptops that we shared with our friends. Well, it isn't um, guessing that the people that were funding and helping weren't too anxious because it's their first one. Because they could have been like, Adam, what the fuck's going on? Adam, where oh, are you yeah. at? Are you run over? Hang on, what do you mean you spent an extra day? Like they were, It's it must be incredible to know that they were so kind of relaxed and understanding and trusting in you. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I, I think the real the secret um, ingredient that really made this work was time. Yeah. You know, it took five years to make, to really make this movie, 
but we had five years yeah and it was never you know i mean yeah they want you to you know they want it to be finished there was never a time when i thought you know what i'm just done with this it's never going to be what i want it to be um you know it was always let's go back let's let's you know all right it's not working let's figure out what about it isn't working and find a way to make that work that won't cost us any additional money um yeah they i okay there was this thing that i noticed when i was because in the in prepping this, I was also listening to just like every director's interview and commentary yeah. and everything, looking for any advice I could get. And one thing I, I noticed in so many interviews, were, you know, Danny Boyle and Christopher Nolan and all these people talking about on their first film, like you know, we didn't know what we didn't know, and we screwed up, and we you know we got all this stuff wrong, but we still made a movie and yeah. And I think some people would hear that and think, oh, how do I not make the mistake that they, you know, the mistakes that they made? I heard that and thought, okay, so this is my excuse. This is my chance to make mistakes. Yeah. You know, if I, yeah. um, You know, and if, if we still manage to make this thing come together and we, you know, it per chance to dream, we make a second movie, then we no longer have the excuse of, well, we didn't know what we were doing. Like people are going to assume that you have some semblance of an idea because you've done it before. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a weird thing because at the moment I'm not making a film. I'm just obsessed with film. I have been since I was a kid and started buying Empire Magazine, but I've been buying loads of the BFI classic books on essays on the big massive films out there, stuff like Eternal Sunshine, Jaws, all the classics. And I'm, becoming obsessed with the making of films instead of just enjoying a film for watching it on screen. I now need to know why that shot was done like that. What lighting <laughs> rig they used, why they used that cinematographer. And you can become obsessed, but the fact that these people that you idolize like Christopher Nolan, who in my opinion is one of the greatest out there, the fact he makes mistakes and he is human must give you that reassurance. Like, do you know what? I am okay to not do things completely right all the time. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to, it's funny, you know, you just mentioned you're reading all these these books and articles about how movies were made and why that shot was there. I feel sometimes like I'm disappointing people because my answers can be like, it was there, it was free. Yeah. You know, but I think a big thing when you're making a movie so small is you're basically playing jazz and you're reacting to what's around you. And I always say, I feel like I have a prism in my chest and cause you're making so many decisions when you direct a movie uh, and so many just, in, you know, in rapid succession that you don't always know why something is right. No. But so I have this prism and the light hits the prism and I know what color I'm looking for. And if it makes that color, yes. And if it doesn't make that color, no. And you know, a year later something will happen and it's like, oh, that's why that was right in the moment. But you know, um, because it was such a personal thing and because, you know, I just kind of lived in the story, I could kind of trust my instincts. Yeah. And earning that with, you know, 
that trust from others, from the cloud and Mike and everybody that like, I'm not, I'm not always going to have a good answer for why I'm doing something, but just trust me that I know what I'm, you know, that I, I, it, it works and yeah. I will eventually be able to explain why. <laughs> Amazing. So once the film was finished, um, at what point, and I know it sounds a ridiculous question, but at what point did you know it was finished? Because when I sit yes. and edit like a podcaster, I listen to audio and I can remove some of the ums and the ahs or the microphone noise, or I could sit there, but there's a point where I have to say to myself, look, this needs to be natural. This needs to be real. I don't want it to sound like a polished, completely yeah. artificial conversation. So most of the times it's very little editing now because I just need to learn to let go. At the start, I was so anal, it would take me 14 hours to edit a one hour conversation. I was never at the point to be able to say it's finished, but I have to now, I set myself up with deadlines and just tell myself, look, that's the point. But for you, when was this film finished? When did you know that was the time to say, right, let's render this down, <laughs> let's say this is done and let's get this out there? Mark, I love that question. Um, it's a great question. Uh, this thing took forever. Yeah. And we, we got it. There were points along the way where it's like, oh, maybe this, like, maybe this works. Maybe this is it. And you just get tired. You know, you just get tired and you're like, I'm done. I, I hit a wall. I, it's the movie's, the movie's good. It's good enough. Let's go. And then both McLeod and I are tinkerers. So, you know, it's, you get a day later and it's like, you know what? It's not done. Um, so I can tell you specifically when that happened. At Screamfest, when we had our US, our North American premiere. Yeah. This was in October in LA. And they, you know, they they wanted to have an in-person festival, but obviously all the distancing concerns. So it was a drive-in. Yeah. So we're sitting in the car watching the movie. And I had just been there a few nights before to watch Halloween at a drive-in, which I thought wow. like, I mean, you can't pass that up. No. So sitting there, I don't remember the precise moment in the film. No. But I remember watching it and, and thinking, it's a movie. It's no longer a project. It felt like a movie. And I was like, it's done. I think we did. I mean, we probably tweaked something after it, but um, I think because McLeod just like, he's always wanting to go back into the sound mix, but that was the moment of like, oh my God, we did it. Yeah. It, there's no longer, there's, you know, it's not that it's perfect. You, you know, I, I, I knew it would never be perfect, but I was just like, we can make it the best version of itself and getting every needle drop to be, you know, there was, at, you know, there, there was this one needle drop for the longest time, like every other music, every other song in it, I was so happy with, and there was one that I wasn't. And we, we just went back and went through all of this band's music and found one. It was one of the first songs they ever made together and dropped it in. And it's just like, that's it. That's, that's the sound that that moment needs. That's the one. And so, yeah, just sitting there like, it's done. Nice. Like I actually made a movie. Oh, Amazing. Man. So yeah. at that point, you've got no expectations. Like you said, you've kind of made this film. You know how small it is, you know, the budget that was involved. There's no kind of huge companies expecting huge finance 
um, reward off it. So when this film did come out and, you know, I've sat there this week looking on IMDb and reading all the reviews that you get and Rotten Tomatoes, you could have never have expected the response. And that's not about just being <laughs> modest or just being, you know, humble. You, you, you really must have been blown away because there's no trolls, there's no dickheads, there's no idiots saying this movie's wank. Everyone is saying... Yet. Yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but do you know what? There's a troll yeah. on nearly every person's release on IMDb. And maybe you've got a troll hunter, I don't know. But something is working because everyone is saying the film is incredible. Everyone is saying the film is rightly deserved of these amazing five-star reviews. And then you went and won the best film at Fright Fest. You know, it must be a bit of those moments where you're like, pinch me. Yeah. Um, I didn't know awards were a thing at Fright Fest. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here in the States, so it's a little, you know, it's a little later where you guys are. Yeah. Um, I got, I woke up one morning at 6 a.m. to go to the bathroom. I happened to grab my phone and looked at it. It had just blown up with messages. And I was like, what happened? And open, there was an email from, from Greg, um, Greg Day at Fright Fest, it opened it up and it just said, you know, total film Fright Fest award winners, best picture, best actor, best director. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> just looking at my phone, like, wait, what? Uh, and <laughs> next week she's like, what, what, what happened? What's going on? I'm like, uh, we won some awards. Shit. <laughs> real. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. And like, I, you know, there's this obvious caveat that like awards for art are kind of a silly thing. There is no objective best, but they, I've always felt that they kind of help the conversation. You yeah. know, uh, I, I knew people that were like Avengers in game has to win best picture. And it's like, you know, Avengers in game's gonna get eyes. Yeah. <laughs> like best picture is something that, you know, it guides people to a film. Yeah. You don't need that help, you know, but Moonlight does. Yeah. Uh, and so, and, you know, winning awards helped us get our distribution deal because it told Arrow that there's an audience for this movie. Who knows how big it is? Yeah. I, I tend to undersell that, but I think that people reacted to it because it's saying something that they wanted to hear. Yeah. And that isn't being said elsewhere. That's amazing. So now that you've got this distribution and over here, Arrow, I've done a lot of work with Arrow, but before even podcasting, I was spending any money I had on Arrow releases. It's the perfect way. They like Screen Factory, like Criterion. They put their heart and soul into these releases. The extras, the commentaries, the outtakes, the different trailers you never got to see. And it is for any movie fan, like, they never half ass a release. It's like the ultimate edition. If you buy John Carpenter's The Thing, even though I've got it six or seven times, the Arrow <laughs> version is the version I always go to because yeah. it's got everything I want. The transfer is beautiful. The extras are everything I need. The commentary is on there. So to know that you've got that shelf now that can have your film amongst this, that alone must be just fucking awesome. Well, as you can see over my shoulder, I'm a big physical media fan. Yeah. So... You know, it kind of, it, it honestly, it kind of carried on this idea that like, 
you know, when we're making it, okay, I might never get to make a second movie. So I can't put every idea into this, but let me say something that I just need to say, yeah. you know, let me just, if, if nothing else happens, at least I did this. So then when Arrow calls and says, Hey, we'd like to acquire your movie. Well, I may never get to make another Blu-ray because physical media just isn't what it used to be. Yeah. Um, so it became like, all right, like if, if Arrow wants to put this out, like let's, you know, to par to horribly paraphrase Gandhi, let's make the Blu-ray we wish to see in the world. Yeah, um, yeah I just, it was so exciting. Um, and I remember like, because, you know, we negotiated for a while and I was getting kind of input on some stuff of like, is this fair to, is, you know, because, you know, you don't know your, like your expectations if you've never done something. It's like, I have no idea if this is yeah. right. So I remember talking to Aaron Moorhead about like, this is what's kind of being bandied about. And at one point he just said, you know, Arrow wants to put out your first film. Yeah. Just say yes. Yeah. He's like, most of us, like people would give a limb to get a film distributed by Arrow. You got it on your first one. Exactly. How about you just say yes? <laughs> Fair point. What I wanted to do now is obviously go and discuss what's next because this film, before you know it, it's going to be out on release. People can go and buy it. You'll start to see a lot more new fans jumping on board. But then the instant question that anyone gets when they buy a film, they enjoy it is, where can I see more of this guy's work? Or what's he going to do next? Right. I know the world's in a very fucked up place right now and with COVID it's impossible to really make a film. It's delaying even the biggest releases like James Bond and Tenet and everything else was delayed. Mm -hmm. Where's your head at now? Because you've got this film, it's finished, it's out there, it's going to be able to buy. What do you want to do next? Are you already working on the sequel? Are you looking at other options? Are you wanting to do something a bit different? It's funny, I do actually have an idea for a sequel. Yeah, um, but we're not working on that because that would be wildly presumptuous. Yeah, um, we had some companies reach out after Glasgow, and for the most part, it was oh, we want to see this movie, and then they'd see it and they're like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> um, but there was one that said, oh, that's not fair. There were a couple, but uh, that would say, you know, oh, what else are you working on? And one of them, I just I sent them like a batch. It was just like here's. You know this true crime story I, I have an idea for and here's uh another horror thing that you know idea that i just had and here's you know all kinds of stuff. and one of them is this sci-fi story that i wrote as a pilot for like kind of an anthology-ish show right um at the time i was really into black mirror and i wanted to do something that you know felt like that that had this like universe that all the stories existed in and could cross over, you know, when, when that called for it. But, yeah. um, and then at some point I was sitting uh, in a bar in Brooklyn and it occurred to me that no one's looking at me to make a pilot, but people might look at me <clears throat> to make, you know, to make an independent feature, to make a feature. So I thought, oh, I should, I should try to make this into a feature instead of a pilot. I pulled my favorite subplot out of it and figured like, okay, I'll develop this. And then everything happened with, you know, uh, just a lot of stuff went down at the end of 2019. Yeah. And then Glasgow happened. And um, and so I sent these like 20 pages to, to the company 
and they just figured that's the first 20 pages of the script so like this is a great first act and uh and he they came back saying like this this we really want to you know let's work on this i was like oh shit now i have to come up with you know <laughs> the rest of the movie pages. yeah um and kind of you know just burrowed in uh, you know and wrote a wrote a draft um and we we worked on that together i had an idea that was interesting but you know just like no let's let's not do that that you know um and we finally found a direction for the story and so we've you know we've been kind of developing it's a time travel road movie Right, and that seems to have the momentum at this point. So my hope is that uh, I'm I'm finishing up special features for the Blu-ray now. Once I'm done with that, because that has just consumed my life for yeah. months now. Uh, once I'm done with that, I'm going to take a few days to just read some stuff and watch some stuff and let my brain defrag, and then I've got some writing work that I'm behind on. But I get to get back into the script and finish this draft. Uh, you know, I've been just compiling ideas as like, you know, okay, for later, for later, for later. And so my, I'm hope I'm hoping that like by the end of March, I can finish the draft, get it to the company. A few companies now are, are interested because we got distribution and, you know, it's like, oh, this, I guess this is a filmmaker that can make films. We should talk to him. Um, and then we see if anybody wants to make it. That's awesome, man. And it's good that like, you're putting so much time and effort into that Blu-ray release because like you said a minute ago, it might be your first Blu-ray release. Well, it is your first Blu-ray, but in full respect, it could be your last because yeah. everyone's streaming everything now. Like I've not yeah. bought as many Blu-rays anymore. That's because of space, but you know, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a shame, but you know, it, there's not as many people wanting the full package anymore of the commentary and the outtakes and the trailers. but to know that this is your first one you're going to put out there and it's been distributed by such a well-respected label I'm sure you want to yeah. put every bit of effort and blood and tears into it to make it the perfect release you know we had um back at the end of 2019 uh the Criterion Collection screened it in their screening room because right. I have a friend who works at Criterion and yeah. so she you know she was like, yeah, she wanted to, to watch it. And so I got to invite a few friends and I got to go into the closet and take home some movies. Oh, nice. um, and it's just, <clears throat> we continue to get so lucky on this movie and we continue to have these amazing experiences. And I'm not, um, I'm not blind to our involvement. And, in you know, like, yes, we made this movie that are, is getting people excited. Yeah. But you know, the movie, the movie's bigger than us, you know, just, you know, we made it, but if we're, we're not doing our job, if the movie isn't bigger than us and because you, you want to make something that's accessible to, to, to more people than just yourself. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, for the movie to open up my world, you know, and get me to Europe for the first time and, um, play, you know, played New Orleans at a thing. I was like, I've never been to New Orleans. Like my movie, you know, this movie's traveled more than I have. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, and it's just so cool. And like, it's, it's what you dream about, you know, when you're a kid watching back to the future and thinking like, I think I want to do this or watching Pulp Fiction. Like you hope that one day your, your movie is showing in a theater. I watched it at a drive-in. <laughs> like yeah 2020 sucked but yeah. i got to watch my movie at a drive-in like take the win where you can you know 
so yeah like it all kind of goes back to that you know we we get lucky and i think it's like i don't ever want to not see it that way no you know because lots of people work really hard to make a movie and it doesn't show the criterion and it doesn't get on arrow and it doesn't you know win awards at festivals it doesn't even get into festivals no yeah and you know i'm a big believer i subscribe to the thing of like the harder i work the luckier i get but you've got to acknowledge the luck factor yeah it's helped me along the way and i never take it for granted it's a blessing every time yeah like edgar wright tells you that he listened to your podcast you're not going to have words for a second like it's going to kind of blow your mind right yeah exactly it's absolutely fucking mind-blowing which is yeah you gotta go wow <laughs> So at this point now, we know what's hopefully coming up in the future. A lot of people that listen to the podcast are people that are starting out or wanting to be a film director or a producer or a screenplay writer or an actor. But what advice do you give to those people? Because I've asked this question to people like Anthony Hopkins and the biggest actors in the world, but I've asked it to the people that are just starting out like um, Tom Payton and the, the, the young directors in the world. But... What advice do you give to those people that are listening right now and they're thinking, do you know what? Adam's got a great view on how to make a film and he did it and he went and lived it and produced this film. I want to do the same. What, what advice do you give to those people that really want to try and do something like this? One of the, the key parts of getting older, I find, is like you kind of figure out how your brain works. Yeah. Um, you know, and where you have to hack it, where you have to like, you know, like I said, I, I always made things a little smaller for myself so that it didn't overwhelm me. Yeah. Um, because so much has happened in these last five years. Any of them could have been the thing that I was just like, I, nope. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with that. Um, so in terms of making this, like, I was at a really bad place right. in my life. Um, I knew that I wanted to make a movie. I knew that I needed to make a movie yeah. and I needed to know, and I had no backup plan. No. So I needed to know if I could make a good movie. It wasn't enough just to make one because I knew people that had made movies that never went anywhere. And, you know, it's just that like, you know, you're pissing in the wind. Um, I used to, I used to be an usher and, you know, you go into the theater and there's nobody there and the movie's showing and it's like, you know, but it's, it's like a spiritual version of that. I'm just like, yeah. your movie never shows to anybody. So um, when it came time, when I knew that we could do this, um, when I told MF Thomas the idea and he said, I'll put in this amount of money. And my mom said that they would match it. And I knew that like, we might not have much money, no. but we have some, we have enough to keep ourselves accountable. Yeah. Um, I had been feeling like an existential mistake. I'm, I struggle with depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation. And by the time we got to this point, I really was thinking if I, I need to like Pete Sampras vomiting on the tennis court, leave it all on the field. Yeah. Like there can be no excuses. No, I cannot. I don't have a lot of money, but if I can make something that works within this structure, because if at the end of the day I make a movie and it sucks, I don't. I didn't want to give myself any outs. Yeah. 
because I would like the stakes that I was dealing with was um, if I can't do this and I tried my absolute best, then I'm okay kind of um, killing myself, to be honest. And so the stakes for it were always like, you know, I'm tired. Yeah. Uh, or, oh God, we have to recast. Oh, you know, you're, you're replacing. We were shooting at the same time as like a movie with a real budget in Cincinnati. So we were losing yeah. people constantly. All of that stuff happens and all of that stuff can give you an excuse to kind of uh, phone, you know, to, 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 to pick up your ball and go home. Yeah. Uh, and you have to, you have to hold yourself accountable and say, no, like this is bigger than anything else for yeah. me. This is, you know, okay, I no longer have that person. I have to replace them and I have to find the best possible replacement. Um, because I knew that we weren't gonna be able to control a lot, that's where the jazz aspect kind of comes in where I was yeah. kind of open to, okay, like, you know, we're going to talk to these folks and we're going to see, you know, it, like, does this work? Um, and there's a humility of, uh, you know, you have to be humble before your movie and let it guide you because some of your ideas aren't going to work. But, you know, like when I cut the, the assembly cut, it was an hour and 50 minutes long and it was awful. But the ending always worked. And the ending gave us like our hope of like, okay, yeah. this, this is cinema. You know, if we can just get to this faster. And so you, 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 know, you start cutting it down, you're tightening up scenes. Suddenly this one's really good. This one's really good. And we got to a point where from minute 34 on, it was strong, but we didn't earn it in the first 33. And that's when we went back and did pickups. You know, it would be tempting to say, this is the best version of what we did. Yeah. But I, you know, at the end of the day, like, I'm not going to be able to sleep knowing that I could make it better. Like, oh, but it's going to be so hard. And, yeah. you know, McLeod's going to have to fly back. And like, yeah, that's like, what do you, do you want your movie to suck? Do yeah. you want, like every time you watch it, I've watched this movie hundreds of times now and I really dig it. I can still get lost in it, but it's because we kept working because we said, this doesn't work. We have to figure out a way to make it work. Yeah. So you know, if you're, if you're wanting to make your first film, you know, I, you're listening to commentaries, you're, you're listening to, you know, you're watching YouTube clips of, you know, um, uh, you know, of Catherine Bigelow, you know, giving a talk on how she yeah. made Point Break and her like, like, um, and take it all in and, but like, figure out the lane that you can occupy fully, um, let me, I'll give you this. This is, there's this bit in the movie Walk the Line. This is what I always come back to. This is honestly like I should get it tattooed on me if it wasn't yeah. such a long thing. But there's a bit in Walk the Line where Johnny Cash and his band are playing uh, some old gospel song and the engineer just stops them. And he says, guys, no one wants to hear a bunch of guys they've never heard before play a song they've heard too many times. You know, let's say you hit, you get hit by a truck and you fall into a ditch and you're bleeding out and you have time to sing one song that speaks to your experience of the world what is that song? And I thought, if I'd never get to make another movie, what is the thing that I can say? And I honestly think that's where you have to start from. Because yeah. especially if you're dealing with a budget that's super low, all you really have is your perspective. Yeah. You know, all you really have is your unique experience of this life. 
And if that's not what you're offering, I mean, Marvel's making superhero stories much better than we can at, you know, yeah, you know, five, five figure budget. Like, no, you got to say something that nobody else can say. And something that I ask every guest that comes on the podcast to choose the outro piece of music. So every episode has a different piece of outro music. So when you listen to the episode with um, Brandon Cronenberg, he picked the outro music. Um, I don't give you any time to think about it. I ask you on the spot. So it's the song that comes to your heart and mind and soul. When I ask you the question, what's the song that comes on that would be perfect for you? What's the one that's the first one that comes to your head? The first song that came to mind was Yellow Cotton Dress because it's the movie. It's such yeah. a, it's a, the song is a huge part of the movie. Um, my favorite piece of music, it's very strange to have a very favorite piece of music, but it's um, This Bitter Earth on the Nature of Daylight. It's the mashup of Billie Holiday and Max Richter. Okay. That is my absolute favorite piece of music. So let's use that. Okay. That's the one that will be your favorite piece of music. Yes. Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. From the moment you came on, I just had this feeling that I would just click with you. And it's sometimes, and this is behind the scenes, but some interviews are tough. Some interviews that you do, (laughs) they're not what you think they're going to be. And I came in here with no expectations today. And I've absolutely loved talking to you. I think we could easily talk for another three or four hours. It's one of those. Probably, yes. (laughs) I I have work I have to do, but yes. (laughs) Yeah, I I welcome you back anytime you want to come on because it's been a genuine pleasure. I've absolutely loved talking to you. And I think there's so much more to discuss, but hopefully that will leave the listeners wanting more as well. So I want to thank you for your time and I wish all the luck for this release i can't wait for it to come out with arrow buy a copy tell everyone to buy a copy and see that everyone will start to then explore more and more into this film thank you um movies of this size like they really live and die by word of mouth yeah and it is it's people like you who are excited about the film and want to talk about it that give it a, a, a fighting chance um it is it's a it's a it's an honor and a privilege to get to talk with, with people like you and and come on your show and kind of spread the gospel of a, a ghost way it's, it's a lot of fun so there it is there's my interview with me and adam stovall and as i said at the start of today's episode you need to go and see a ghost waits it's absolutely awesome you will not regret it take a blind buy go and buy it and trust me you will fall in love this is an incredible film and you will not believe the heart and the soul and everything that this guy's put into the film. It really shows and it really pays off. If you are a filmmaker and today you've been sat there listening to Adam, hopefully you've felt as inspired as I did because honestly, I absolutely adored him from start to finish. I fell in love with his interview. I absolutely loved editing it and sitting back and listening to him and how passionate he is about film is something that's so infectious. So I hope you guys have enjoyed it just as much. Thanks again for everyone that listens to Mark and Me. If you really want to support the podcast, I do have a Patreon page. The link is over on markandme.com. And on there at the moment, I'm giving away some incredible prizes from the amazing folks at Vice Press News. They've given me some incredible posters. And honestly, I'm now doing a surprise monthly draw where I'm putting up an exclusive artist variant. And that's only to people that support me. And a massive thank you for those people on Patreon that go that extra mile and support Mark and Me. 
please, it makes a massive difference and really does help this podcast to be where it is today. I'll be back in only a few days' time with a brand new episode, but until then, keep the tweets coming, keep sharing the episodes, jump on Facebook, jump on Instagram, tell everyone to listen. It means the absolute world to me, and I'll be back with a brand new episode real soon.
Oh, oh, oh. 